Luke chapter 8 is where we've got to in the journey. Last week it was the parable of the sower and this week we are in the storm. Next week it's the demon-possessed man of the Gerasene region and then after that it'll be the woman with the issue of blood and Jairus' daughter. We have this blast of sort of acts of power that Jesus does Uh, in Luke's gospel after the parable of the sower. And in fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I think, all have these three stories, or these these accounts, and all have them in the same sequence. Slightly different levels of detail, but they're all put put together. Uh, Linda read a little bit there from from Luke 8. There's a couple of verses just between last week and this week, and I just want to briefly point to them before we we get into the main passage for this week. So Luke 8, 19 says, Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. And someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. And what Jesus is stressing here is priorities. That there's, there's, a, there's a scene where the disciples are inside the house. The disciples are with him. They are at his feet. And they are hearing the secrets of the kingdom as Jesus explains the parables. His flesh and blood family who have a topsy-turvy journey through the Gospels, they make it at the end. But initially in Jesus' ministry, they're just not quite sure. On one occasion, they think that he's mad. They say that he's beside himself. And here you've got his family outside. And and there's a clear distinction. It's made even clearer in Mark's gospel. There are those who are inside at his feet and there are those who are outside and not getting access. And Jesus redefines what it means to be his family, to be his mother, to be his brothers, to be his sisters, is those who sit and hear God's word and put it into practice. That's what it means to be part of the family of God. And lest anyone would get confused, he is not for a moment endorsing neglect of family. I have heard one or two over the years preachers who almost seem proud of the fact that they have neglected family in order to pursue ministry. It is nothing to be proud of. And this is not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying your first priority is to sit at my feet and to hear my word, and to be part of my family. He's not indirectly saying that we should neglect our loved ones. And then we have the passage that that Linda read for us uh, a minute or two ago. Now, the Jewish people did not like to be beside the seaside at all. (laughs) They were terrified of the water. They were not a seafaring people. They were a people who dwelt on the land and spent all their time on the land and were given a promised land, not a sea. And they did not like being on the sea. The fishermen were the only ones who would, who would go on to the sea. But if you were to take a walk on the shores of Galilee in the first century, you would not have found many people going for a swim. Nobody was paddleboarding on Galilee. Nobody was going out on a jet ski. They did not go on the water or in the water if they didn't need to. They were scared of the water. And the reason was because when you read the Old Testament and you also look at the culture around them, particularly from Egypt where Israel had come out of, 
there was a real fear of the water and a real sense that the sea was the place from which monsters came, demons came. It was a place of chaos, a place that was unpredictable, untamable, and completely wild. In fact, in Egyptian culture, there was a, a guy called Apophis, who was the chaos monster. Apophis is the one that looks a bit like a snake, and Apophis lived in the sea. And this picture depicts Apophis being killed by some sort of divine cat-rabbit hybrid. I always look at these pictures and think they were really bad at art. Pretty sure I could do that with, with a wee bit of time. Like, but Egyptian culture actually is, is fascinating. You, you might not agree, but one of the things they believed was they worshipped the sun god who was called Ra. And every night they believed that when Ra went down, when the sun went down, he then went into the depths, into the waters of chaos. And every night Ra had a battle with Apophis, the chaos monster. And then if Ra won, then the next morning he rose again from the waters. That, that's what they believed. It's quite, it is quite interesting. You don't seem to agree. But anyway, uh, th this was culture. The waters were a place of chaos. And you didn't tinker around or play around at the water. And we read in the scriptures, Genesis 1, we've got this picture of the earth being formless and empty, chaotic. All right, just no, no form, no structure can't, well, I was going to say something about a particular department, but I'm not. <laughs> Rates knows the one. Uh, no form, no structure. Uh, darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. We have this picture of chaos. And God in creation is going to speak his word and bring order from chaos. In Psalm 93, we have again this picture of the sea. Lifting up, O Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Fear, chaos, destruction. In Daniel, he has a vision in chapter 7. It's one of the most fascinating chapters in the Old Testament. And it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the sea. Four great beasts then come out of the sea in Daniel's vision. It is the source of chaos. It is the source of evil. And, and the first beast is like a lion, has the wings of an eagle. The second beast looked like a bear. The third beast looked like a leopard. And then there's a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening, very powerful. It's different from the other ones. It had ten horns. And those four beasts represent four empires in the ancient world. The, the fourth one being Rome. And all of them come from the water. Okay, I'm trying to make the point that the Hebrews looked at the water and didn't like it. It was a place of evil and of chaos. In Revelation 13, the image of the sea is still there because we've got this dragon, Satan, standing on the, the shore of the sea and a beast then comes out of the sea. Most people are familiar with the beast in Revelation comes up out of the sea. And this beast actually is like a composite of all of the beasts in Daniel 7. It's got the ten horns. It's like a leopard. It's like a bear. And it's like a lion. It's all of them rolled into one horrific creature that comes up out of the sea. All right? You get the point? Nasty things come out of the sea. So Jesus says, let's go. Get in the boat and go onto the sea or onto the lake 
of Galilee, as it was known. So they got into the boat and set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. Love that. <laughs> I love Jesus, able to just take a nap anytime. Content, trusting God. A squall, what on earth is a squall? A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. Mark tells us it was a furious squall. Now, whenever you go to Galilee, I think we should do that sometime. It would be a nice sort of church trip, wouldn't it? When the world returns to normal, it would be lovely to all go to, to, to Galilee and get Rick Watts or someone to come and be our guide for two weeks. But when you're on Galilee, the, the banks of the sea or the, 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 the shore very quickly rises to high ground. They're very steep hills around Galilee. And what happens is the cold air comes down from the hills, meets the warm air over the water, and very, very suddenly these big storms will form. In fact, if you go and park your car near Galilee, there are signs in the car parks warning people Basically, you might park your car on a nice, calm, sunny day and go for a walk and come back an hour later and find your car is being pounded by waves. Even today, you'll get these storms that will whip up on Galilee very, very quickly. And isn't that like life? You don't usually get a forecast when a storm is about to land. Yeah? You don't get a warning on the BBC website three days before that there's going to be high winds. You get a phone call and suddenly chaos. You get a text message and suddenly chaos all around you. A hospital diagnosis, a scan result, something going on in a relationship, but you rarely get a warning that in several days time, at such and such a time of day, you're going to get a phone call and it's going to throw your life into chaos and you've got three days to get ready for it. That doesn't happen. <laughs> the storm whips up suddenly and suddenly you find yourself in the middle of it, in chaos and in darkness. And this was a severe storm. If hardy fishermen who were used to working on the lake every single night going out and, and catching fish if they were scared, this was a severe storm. And here's, here's a boat that was found in 1986 in Galilee. It's known as the Jesus boat because whenever the archaeologists dated it, they found that it dated to early first century. That's the only thing that links it with Jesus. There's no sort of I, no notion that this was a boat that Jesus was in, but it was from that time. And the point is, even though there's not an awful lot left of it, it's not very big. <laughs> this is not a ship. This is not a trawler. This is a small wooden boat. And if you're stuck in that, out on the waves on Galilee, it is a pretty scary place to be. I have never really been in, in, a, in a storm at sea. I've been a, on a couple of slightly uncomfortable ferry journeys. Tim, you've probably experienced that a couple of times where you look out the window and everything's just slowly going up and down and you very quickly try to get away from the window or lie down or something. Um, I've been on, on a, a boat called a puffer <laughs> on Loch Earn um, and I was navigating it for a while and didn't do very well and it was just basically going up and down over the waves and it was not pleasant. This is worse. There's just no shelter here. There's, there's nothing at all. And that's what these guys are in in the storm at the mercy of the elements being buffeted and Jesus all the while having a snooze. 
And I want you to note that they are not in the storm because they were disobedient. This was not God punishing them for doing something wrong. They were in the storm because they were obedient. Jesus said, we are going to the other side of the lake. And they got in the boat and they set out and they did what they were told. Sometimes storms come because you are being fully obedient to God. And there's challenges in between where God said we're going to go and sort of that in-between journey. And when you're in the in-between journey, it's quite difficult. When you get to the other side, you're thankful. You look back, you've learned things. But these guys are in the storm, not out of carelessness or irresponsibility, but because they have listened to Jesus and they have done what they were told. But they're now in a circumstance they have no control over. Horrible place to be. We all like to have a degree of control and this is going to happen and this is going to happen and then I'm going to do that. And when something just throws that into chaos and you're no longer in control, it's pretty scary. And Jesus, he's asleep. (laughs) That's a lot of use, isn't it? The squall comes down in the lake and they're in great danger. And they say to Jesus in in Mark chapter 4, as Mark records it, they, they say to him, don't you care if we drown? Luke writes, Master, Master, we are going to drown. Mark just adds that little bit extra, don't you care? Have you ever said that to God? No need to put your hand up and, and make a fuss about it. But you know what? When you're in a storm, you get a bit disoriented. Visibility is not as good. Physically, you're feeling quite ropey. And all your points of reference and all the things that, see, you know, the, the lighthouse in the distance or whatever, the things, the landmarks, you can't see them. And you're disoriented. And you start to think, Jesus, God, are you asleep? <laughs> Can you not see what's going on here? Because you're disoriented. It's easy to be like that in the midst of a storm. And I think one of the ministries that we need to have to one another is that when one of us is going through a storm, there are others who are reorienting that person as they're being buffeted and knocked around. There are others gathered around helping them to to just get their bearings again and get their focus on the landmarks and the lighthouses again and on Jesus, of course. There's a whole ministry there. And, and whenever, whenever people are going through storms and they withdraw and they isolate and they try to go through it on their own, very, very dangerous. Because that disorienting can then become a much greater problem than it might otherwise have been. And Jesus gets up in, in Luke 8, 24, and he rebukes the storm. Rebuke. Mark records a little, Mark records what he says, and what he says is the Greek phrase for shut up. He says to the storm, shut up. He rebukes it. That's funny, isn't it? Like the word rebuke. He doesn't pray to God that the storm would stop. He rebukes the storm. He addresses the storm itself. And this word rebuked has come up a couple of times in Luke so far. In chapter 4, Jesus rebuked a demon. In 4.35, be silent and come out of him. Shut up, (laughs) demon. 
and come out of him. And in Luke 4.39, he rebukes disease and sickness. That's Peter's mother-in-law who has a fever. And Jesus goes and he leans over her and he rebukes the fever. And the same word is used here then for what he does with this storm. He rebukes it. I wonder then, was the storm demonic? Was this more than just a natural meeting of cold air and warm air? Was this a demonic storm? Was it churned up by the evil one as an attempt to stop Jesus from getting to his destination? If you know the story, and I mentioned it earlier, you will know where his destination is and what will happen when he gets there. And find out next week. Was the enemy trying to stop him from getting there? And even more, was the enemy trying to kill him in this storm on the lake? Because Jesus treats the storm the way he treats a demon. And he rebukes it. He's mad with it. He doesn't accept it. You know, be be very careful when, when hard times come that you don't just sort of sit back and say, well, then maybe this is God's will for me. Because sometimes it's a storm that God will use to reveal his character, to deepen your faith and to bring you closer to him. But you're not meant to just lie down in it and say, well, I guess this is just it. Jesus rebuked it. (laughs) He rebuked it. The disciples learned a lot through it. And God can do that with our storms. He can teach us a lot. But we don't just lie down and say, well, this is it for the rest of my life, just to accept this storm and to live in it. Jesus says no, and he rebukes it. And then he says to the disciples, where is your faith? Where's your faith? See, we read the gospel and we know who Jesus is from the very first verse before we start. They didn't. (laughs) And they're on a bit of a journey here with this teacher, this rabbi, who they think good teacher and, you know, potentially the Messiah. But he's doing stuff here that is just ringing their bell big time that they do not expect. And he's saying, where is your faith? Don't you know by now who I am? Don't you trust me by now? And we, we read that they were in fear. They're terrified. They are now, when, when you sort of read through it, earlier in the passage, they are scared of the storm. By the end of the passage, they are absolutely terrified of Jesus. They are far more scared, far more fearful of the guy standing at the other end of the boat than they were of the storm. If you picture the scene after everything's calmed down and and the sea of Galilee is now like glass and it's all quiet and Jesus is at one end of the boat and the 12 disciples are all sort of huddled at the other end of the boat, sort of coping it up. So Jesus like, you know, angled up and they're all at the other end terrified, trying to get away from them. They're far more fearful of the one who can calm the storm than they were of the storm. In fact, Mark again does a a really brilliant thing here. Uh, Well, Bible nerds will find it brilliant. Whenever Mark records that they were terrified, he, he puts the same word twice. He Literally in Greek, it says phobio phobos. They were fearfully fearful, (laughs) to emphasize it. They were fearfully fearful. Earlier on in the passage, it's phobos, they're afraid. But now they're phobio (laughs) phobos. They're fearfully afraid. 
And what Mark is actually doing in his version is he's pointing us back to another sleepy sailor in another storm. Jonah chapter 1 verse 10 records the men on the boat with Jonah being exceedingly afraid. And in Hebrew, it is yare, yare, same word twice. They were fearfully afraid. And what Mark is doing in his account, he's saying is, you need to go back and compare what's going on here with what went on for our Jonah. Both Jesus and Jonah are on the way to Gentiles. Jesus to the Gerasene demoniac, Jonah to the people of Nineveh. Both of them are in a storm. Both of them are asleep. Both of them are wakened by terrified sailors. Both of them try to stop the storm. The difference is Jonah is running away from God's call, whereas Jesus is running straight into it. Jesus, unlike Jonah, Jonah is indifferent to the suffering around him. He doesn't care about people. He doesn't care about the Ninevites and the fact that they are ignorant of God and they don't know God and, the, and God is sending him to show his grace and call them to repentance. Jonah doesn't care about the suffering of people. Jesus does. So whereas Jonah wouldn't go to, what was it, 120,000 people in Nineveh? Jonah tried to run away and got stuck in this storm Jesus is going to go through the storm to get to one demon-possessed man whose life is misery. And frequently the Bible will do that. It will invite you to contrast two stories and you'll see this is the same, this is the same, this is the same, this is the same. Bang, this is different. And that's the point it's trying to make. And Mark, by doing something as simple as repeating a word, points you back to when Jonah or the record of Jonah, had a word repeated as well. And then the disciples asked the question, and this is the key question in the whole passage. There are two things in this passage that I really want you to take away. One is the, is the common understanding, which is entirely correct, that Jesus is with us in the storms. The second one, and I think the bigger one, is this question that the disciples asked. Who is this? Who actually is in the boat with us? You see, this is about more than a storm. It's more than a nice little story. This is the big question. Who is this that's in the boat? Before he stills the storm, they refer to him as master. They refer to him as teacher. But now they're starting to really think something's going on here. That's bigger than just master or teacher. Who is this? Why are they asking that question? Because they know all the stuff that I told you earlier about the sea. And they know about the chaos and the evil that comes from the water in their culture, in their understanding. And when they say, who is this? They're thinking back probably to Psalm 89 verse 9, where we read about God. You rule over the surging sea. Who is this? When the waves mount up, you still them. No talk of the Messiah coming to still the waves. God stills the waves. You see, they, they had this perception of the coming Messiah that he was different from God, that he was, he was sent by God and he was God's agent and he was going to do God's work. But they're really having their, their cage rattled here. 
Who is this? Because he's doing God's stuff. He's actually doing the things that only God does. Only God stills the sea. Psalm 107, again, God stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. Written hundreds and hundreds of years before. And the disciples who would have known these scriptures, who is this? Who has calmed the sea and is going to guide us to our desired haven? Isaiah 51, awake, awake. Hmm, who was asleep? Awake, awake. He wasn't asleep just because he was tired and he was super chilled. Um, he wasn't, yes, he was physically tired. He was drained and he needed a nap. But Jesus, there's always more than that. It's, it, there's always more. He was asleep because Isaiah 51 records people crying out to God, awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Awake as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea? The waters of the great deep who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over. Who is this? Who is being awakened and who speaks to the sea? Only God speaks to the sea. Only God is able to control the waters and still the storms. And somehow this God, Yahweh, is in Jesus, in the boat with them and with us. Every single storm we're in, if you're being buffeted right now, if you parked the car on a sunny day on the, on the shore and you went for a walk and all of a sudden it's being buffeted by waves, there was no warning, there was no weather forecast, it just came just like that and you're in a chaotic storm, Jesus, I am reorienting you. I'm helping you to get your landmark, to get your lighthouse and get your eyes fixed. Jesus is with you. (laughs) And God is with you. Because Jesus, this is one of the ways the gospel writers are subtle about this, but once you see it, it's everywhere. Jesus is God because he does the stuff that only God can do. He is in the boat and he is in your storm. And every storm that we go through is a fresh chance, a challenge, an opportunity to get a fresh revelation of who he is, his identity. And to therefore deepen our faith. So many of you, probably all of you, have gone through storms. Sometimes they're small and they don't last that long. Sometimes they're bigger and they go on for a long period of time. And when you're in them, they're not pretty. But if you've been through one and you know now that you have come out the other side or that you are coming out the other side, I'll bet you're thankful for it. Because I'll bet you saw Jesus in it bigger than before and you bet your faith has grown as you've gone through that so what what will jesus do with these storms what does god do with storms you know earlier on i read some verses from the old testament from psalm 93 from daniel 7 and from the new testament and revelation and i intentionally stopped short because I want you to see what comes in the next verse. Now, earlier I read Psalm 93, 3. 
The seas have lifted up, lifted up their voice, lifted up their pounding waves. The chaos pounding against your life. The next verse says, mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. (laughs) We have a storm and then we have one who is enthroned above the storm and in control of it. I read earlier from Daniel 7 about those four ugly beasts that came up out of the sea, the lion, the eagle, the, the, or the lion, the bear, the leopard, and then the, the fourth one that was more terrifying than everything that went before it. Read Daniel 7 and just let it go mad in your imagination. See the sea churning and churning and churning. And one by one, these horrendous things come out of the water. These empires that opposed God's people, that opposed humanity in general, come out of the water one by one. And then see another. (laughs) As I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And it's almost as if he watches as those four beasts come out of the sea one by one. Those four chaotic things, whatever that may be in your life, whether there's four or three or one, as they come out of the sea and do their worst, and then he says, right, my turn. (laughs) And the Ancient of Days takes his seat, and then one walks up to him like a son of man. God takes his seat and Jesus walks up to him, approaches the Ancient of Days, was led into his presence, is given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations, all peoples, every language worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting. It will not pass away and his kingdom will never be destroyed. That's what God does to storms. He lets the enemy do his worst and then he says, right, (laughs) my turn. My turn to silence those beasts and to calm those waves. You get it again in Revelation 13. We read about this beast, Satan on the shore of the sea. And this beast comes up out of the water. A composite of all the beasts of Daniel. Total chaos. Total carnage in society and in people's lives. But in Revelation 19, there's a rider on a white horse. And he's called Faithful and True. He judges, he wages war, his eyes like blazing fire and his head many crowns. He has a name that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. I saw the beast and the kings and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider and the horse and his army, but the beast was captured. Okay, And with it, the false prophet who had performed signs on its behalf, the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. That's what happens to beasts that come out of storms. King Jesus deals with it. He's in the boat. No one else can deal with it. He deals with it. Every time we see this watery chaos in the Bible, we see our God rising up to still it. We see the flood that destroyed so much of the known world at that time And we see a family protected by an ark with Noah in it. God was in the boat. We see a river of death called the Nile in Egypt where the babies of God's people were thrown to die. And a baby goes in in a little boat, a basket, and his name's Moses, and God protects him. God is with his people through every storm. 
every filthy thing that comes out of that sea of chaos against our lives will be defeated. Everything. Every demonic force. And wonderfully then, Revelation ends in the new creation and says, there was no longer any sea. (laughs) That does not mean that in the new creation there will not be oceans and lakes and rivers. What it means is, There'll be no more chaos. Because when, when, when God's people saw the word sea, they, they knew that meant the source of evil. And when, the, when John in his revelation writes down that there'll be no more sea, he's saying there'll be no more chaos. <laughs> there'll be no more storms. Because King Jesus has come and stopped them. And how does he do that? We read back in Luke again, 8, 8 24 and 25. He got up. And he rebuked. He got up and he rebuked. I told you already earlier that that word rebuked is how he speaks to demons. How he speaks to Satan. How he speaks to those evil forces that are real. Do not ignore them. We'll look at them more next week. How he speaks to them that come against God's people and come against all humanity made in his image. That word rebuke is how he speaks to the enemy. And it's used throughout the Gospels in that context. But the phrase he got up, he got up. (laughs) You look behind that, resurrection. (laughs) Every time that's used, it is resurrection. When he gives the the disciples the the prediction or the, the sort of the foretelling of his death and he says the Son of Man will be crucified and and, and three days later, we'll get up. That's the word. There's always so much more going on. You think you're going to preach 20 verses or 30 verses of Luke, and then you get in and you just get lost in the wonder of it all. Resurrection. He got up and he rebuked. Colossians 2.15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, Satan, the beast, the demons, all of it, having disarmed them, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He went to the cross, he died, he was resurrected, he got up and he rebuked. And every storm that comes against us has to bow the knee to Jesus. Has to. This was one particular battle, this storm, before the final great battle that Jesus won on his cross. He will bring eternal calm. There will be no more sea and no more chaos. And because of that, We have nothing to fear but God himself. And that's a healthy fear. That's not a terror or a dread. We have nothing to fear when he is with us in the boat, in our storms. Jesus is with us in every single storm. You've gone through storms. Some of you are going through storms. We've gone through storms as a church community. Jesus has been with us. And he has brought us through And we have grown in faith. And we learn not only that he's in the storm, but that he is God. He brought Noah through the flood, Moses through the death river, Israel through the Red Sea, Israel through the Jordan. He is enthroned above the flood, above the chaos. He has redeemed you and he has called you by name. You are his. And when you pass through the waters, he will be with you. 
and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you because he is God and he is in the boat. Two questions to finish, both coming from Luke 8 in reverse order to what they come to us in the passage. First question is the one that the disciples asked, who is this? Don't ever let Jesus get domesticated in your heart. Don't let him become tamed. Feel what they felt in that boat. Who is this? This is not just a teacher. It's not just a prophet. This is not just the Messiah. This is not just an earthly king. This is not just a wise man. Who is this? Who is this? And then once you've thought in your head about who he is, then we back up in the passage and we come to Jesus' question, where's your faith? Where is your faith? Where are you putting your trust in the storms that you face? And you only give the right answer to that second, or, you, or only, only when you've answered the first question correctly and really pondered who we are dealing with here, that you then have to face the second one to put your faith in him. Yeah? Let's pray. <clears throat>